Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I am delighted to welcome Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin. Elizabeth, I'm really thrilled to talk to you about how all women can use their voices for change with your exciting new book, Becoming Heroines. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So let's talk a little bit. You know, it's an interesting time. We're at a moment in our culture that really opens us up to possible changes in how we work as we continue to navigate this pandemic journey. I don't think we're quite done. You know, we've got vaccinations, good things are happening, but the journey is still uh, very much in progress. So help us understand that. Where are we? Well, it's that's a really good question. I will tell you that with the clients that I work with and the audience that I have, there's real consideration right now about what emerging from the pandemic in the context of work means. Um, uh, many of the women that I work with have been voicing a real concern that their employers, uh, their teams, their places of business may not be uh, using this as the opportunity that I see it as. <laughs> you know, one of the things that's really interesting about the pandemic is it really did rip the veil off of so much inequity. And I know for me, I'm a single mom with two young kids at home. Um, I spent 16 months trying to do my job while being, of course, the primary caregiver to my kids. And all the usual support mechanisms that I had were not there. Uh, I hear that from a lot of working moms, whether they're single moms or not. Um, and certainly as we move toward coming out of this, one of the things that I really want to encourage people to do is to, at the bare minimum, take a moment of reflection about what they don't want to go back to. Um, you know, maybe that's overwork. Maybe that's uh, a work environment that isn't taking account of things like the need for flex time and family leave and childcare and all of those sorts of things. Um, but it's also important from a macro level, I think, for leaders right now to ask their teams what is working for them and what isn't, and to really listen, to take this as an opportunity to create change in the work environment, um, and to really honor the folks uh, on their teams who have been through, as we all have, this extraordinary historical event that maybe has uh, has changed our view of what work really should be. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that you're really encouraging strongly leaders to say, hey, colleagues, hey, teammates, what do you need? Because I don't think that conversation is always happening. I don't think the listening is always happening. Uh, what are your thoughts for those leaders? What what should they be doing? Let's get granular. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that that I'm really big on right now is women using their voices for change at work in ways that are courageous. Um, and this is something that's really hard, I think, for those of us who have been told not to rock the boat. Uh, maybe we've internalized ideas of what um, what it means to be a good employee or a good leader that prevent us from doing that. So, you know, one of the things that is really significant to me is that we acknowledge inequity where we see it. And so that includes things like uh, raising equal pay concerns. If those have come to the fore during this time, certainly the childcare question, I think for many working mothers um, is something that 
we suffered with in silence for a long time. I know a lot of women, for instance, I was a Wall Street lawyer for many years before I started my company. And, you know, one of the things that I know many women faced down was taking a part-time option after having children, but still being expected to work full-time hours or to be available all the time, despite being paid less. Um, and so the, the, the thing that I would encourage folks to do granularly is to really look at the policies in your own workplace and ask whether or not they are really serving everyone. Uh, I'll also add there are a number of fathers who I know now who are really adamant about having changed their own positions on things like parental leave um, and want very much to have equity in their ability to take time off after the birth or an adoption uh, of a child in order to be able to contribute more to their families emotionally. So uh, on a granular level, that's really important. And I'll also just add that I think we all need to um, start to think about how we can use our voices for change, not only on gender, but also on things like racial equity, because we're certainly at a trans transformative moment for that issue and other related issues of equity right now, the likes of which we've never seen in this generation, at least. So that's a really good segue. Intersectionality is a big topic in the book. So explain to our global audience what this is and how crucial it is when we're talking about making work better for all people. Yeah. So intersectionality was a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a very well-known uh, law professor. And it was originally coined to address the nature of uh, different forms of discrimination and inequity that Black women face, both being women of color and also being women. Um, since that time, intersectionality has grown in uh, the lingo to include all the many forms of diversity that live within each of us. And so one of the things that intersectionality points to when we think about work is the way in which our various diversities create different forms of impact on all of us. So, uh, for instance, if you are a, a black trans woman, you are experiencing multiple prongs of discrimination that, say, a white cisgender woman might not face or a white cisgender man might not face. Uh, and one of the questions, uh, circling back to what we were just discussing, from the standpoint of policies and procedures at work, is also the importance of us working across our diversities. So um, you do not have to be, um, for instance, uh, a black trans woman to raise concerns about whether or not your corporate policies are truly inclusive of someone with those identities. Um, and I personally, as I discuss in the book, am really committed to the idea that change has to come across intersectional lines. We need to view ourselves all as arm in arm with one another right now because um, whole movements, breakthrough movements that really create cultural change and will move us toward equality and freedom for everyone require all of us to step up for one another. So I, I want to riff on that a little bit because I, I, read something interesting about your book. And there's talk about how the traditional women's leadership and self-help books are really ineffective and yours flips the script. So how would you speak to that? Yeah, I, it's it's one of the things that, uh, that, that people tend to point out about me generally is that um, I do flip the script on this. So one of the things that I will just say about traditional women's leadership books is that 
this is a generalization, but I think it's an accurate one. Most women's leadership books have historically been about telling women how to achieve on traditional masculine metrics, um, how to dress properly, how to own the corner office. I personally really oppose terminologies like girl boss <laughs> um, because I feel like it sort of pigeonholes us in a lot of ways. Um, and I'll also just say that I have a real problem with um, this, the sort of lean in mentality of you just have to do more. You have to network more. You have to show up more. You've got to, you know, do X, Y, Z magical formula, and then you'll be good enough. So one of the things that the book points out is that traditional masculine modelship models, excuse me, traditional masculine models of leadership are designed for men. They are not designed for women. They're not designed for other marginalized folks uh, to succeed. And indeed, one of the things that many women report when you talk about what their attempts to rise through the corporate ladder are like um, is that the goalposts often move. Um, you know, maybe you're you're too ambitious one year in your annual review and not ambitious enough in the next one. You're too vocal in one review and you're not speaking up enough in another. Uh, and the thing that I like to point out to everyone is that when we're measuring our success on metrics that weren't written by us or made for us, uh, we have to understand that the system itself is not designed for our success. So um, I encourage everyone in the book to really think through what new models of success and new definitions of success could look like. Because to be really candid about it, if we're looking at traditional patriarchal models of success, those systems are designed for women to fail so that men can succeed. And one of the things that I think is really important is that we make an effort as women to not internalize the criticism that is given to us uh, on, on these particular types of metrics, but instead to understand that that feedback is guided by standards that are not designed for our success. So one of the principles of the book is really um, that more effective ways of thinking about success for women have to do with us contributing back. Um, how can we share our gifts? How can we create change and a more equitable world for all? How can we live into the purpose that we're here for? And really measuring those things by um, a, a much more contributory sense of uh, of change? Um, are we doing the most that we can to create a world that everyone will be free to live in? Are we doing the most that we can in our work to make the world a better place? And to stop being so obsessed with things like title and hierarchy, because those are a part of the system um, that, in my view, only succeeds when a very small percentage of us succeed and when most of us fail. So we've got to build a new model and define success on our own unique individual terms. Exactly. Exactly. And also support other women along the way, because one of the real keys to uh, traditional models of leadership is that we've been taught all along that there's only room for so many of us at the top. And that has created environments where women feel like they have to compete with one another rather than collaborating for all women to succeed. Uh, and that means necessarily that we're doing the work of, of patriarchal models for those models, right? We're, we're tearing each other down. We're not collaborating to create change. We're not sharing our gifts with one, another's in, with one another in ways that allow all of us to accelerate uh, our success and our achievement. And so 
we have to be really mindful that the more that we collaborate, we really have to flip our own mindsets on this, to be honest. The more we collaborate, the more we work together to create change, the more we'll all succeed. You know, and and men in many institutions have run the show for you know, centuries at this point, right? We need to understand that um, just because we've never had, for instance, nine women on the Supreme Court, as that famous Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote goes, doesn't mean that it can't happen. There's room for all of us at the top. And when we work together and collaborate, all of us win. Elizabeth, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. Elizabeth. I am fascinated by your own journey as a heroine, and and you mentioned uh, very briefly your time on Wall Street as a lawyer. Would you give us a little more context and and help us understand how you got to where you are and and how you define heroine and someone who is impacting change? So I was a Wall Street securities litigator for the better part of 15 years, and my experience of being a lawyer... uh, was a mixed one. There were aspects of being a lawyer that I really loved. I loved being in court. I loved uh, interviewing and deposing witnesses. Uh, I was always uh, engulfed in the writing of legal briefs and great legal arguments. The intellectual aspects of it were really fun. Uh, The flip side of that was that the law, of course, is a very traditional profession. And I practiced at the highest echelons of the law. Uh, I ended my my full-time practicing career at a law firm that has been around since the mid-1800s that's a very famous white shoe law firm on Wall Street. And my experience there was very similar to some of the things that we've already talked about, one where the goalposts for women to make equity partner were constantly moving. And as I talk about in the early chapters of the book, I had an experience toward the end of my career where Uh, My trajectory was fundamentally sabotaged by a senior partner who um, took something that I said at the end of the night out of context and assumed that I was taking credit for the work of other people when I was not. Um, For about five years before that event, though, I had really been questioning whether or not I was meant to stay in the law for the long term. And I had hired, for instance, my own executive coach. I had done a lot of work on what I knew I was good at. I discovered um, through that work that one of the things that I enjoyed the most was mentoring other women in my law firm and also helping people strategically to solve problems in leadership and advancement and client relationships. I had sort of fallen into it in a de facto way uh, amongst my peers, even while I was still practicing law. And so At the moment where this event happened with a senior partner, um, a few months after that, I was told, and this was at the height of the Great Recession, I was told that there was a solid chance that in six months I might not have a job. And that I I fortunately had a mentor inside the firm who said to me, if you want to get out with a severance package, now is your chance. And so I took that and started my company 
the Gaia Project for Women's Leadership shortly thereafter, and then scaled it very rapidly, uh, in part because I was one of the few coaches at the time, executive coaches and consultants at the time on women's leadership, who had really been in the hardcore 90-hour work week, traditional high-level corporate environment for a long time and really understood the demands of it in my own bones. Um, And thereafter, I started to be called upon by um, media organizations and, um, you know, prominent journalists to talk about women's leadership. And that eventually led to this book. Um, And so I do a lot of virtual training now. I do a lot of um, corporate consulting related to culture change to retain and develop women and other forms of diverse talent. Uh, and I certainly think that in some sense, um, the reason why I didn't ever end up making equity partners because I was meant for something bigger. And that is where I am right now. Fabulous. A higher exactly. calling. Absolutely. So, so Elizabeth, I, I'm fascinated by your journey. And as, as a fellow leadership coach, I'd, I'd love to hear, now that you're on the other side, helping empower women and, and building new systems, as you mentioned, and building new models, what are some of the things that, that you've learned uh, from this different vantage point? So one of the things that I think we have an opportunity to really consider right now is novel forms of leadership. Um, and what I mean by that is that, um, you know, we've, we're all very acclimated to this kind of like hierarchical structure of leadership where there's one person at every level in a corporate environment who's the boss. And they are presumed, whether it's true or not, that they know better than everyone who works below them about their particular area over which they've been given authority. The funny thing is that when you start digging into leadership methodologies, one of the things that you find is that there's been a lot of human performance studies done on how other models of leadership might be more effective. And one of the ones that I talk about in the book in depth is something called the collaborative model of leadership, which really is one that assumes that a leader is actually um, a role that is shared by everyone on a given team, meaning that um, the leader is much more of a facilitator and whomever is the designated leader changes over time. And so one of the things that that means is that you assume that everyone on your team has something to contribute and that there are people on your team who may know better about one specific area of the work that you do than you do. Uh, And that part of your work as an effective facilitator is not only to share responsibility and to make sure that everyone who is involved in a given project or area is invested in it, but also that you're allowing um, everyone an opportunity to speak and you're even allowing yourself to be led. So I think, frankly, that one of the things that women leaders could start to do better here is to model what those types of leadership might look like. Um, You know, when you're facilitating a meeting, are you inviting literally everyone at the table to contribute? Are you keeping an eye out for who in the room or on the Zoom call is silent? And making a point of asking their opinion. Are you paying particular attention to the diversity of the people at your table? Um, And whether or not there are certain folks who are not speaking and certain folks who are dominating the conversation. Are you taking... Uh, the the role of the facilitator seriously to encourage everyone to contribute. These are all things that we as women, I think, um, find more easier to convert to because we are naturally more conversant in communication. That's a generalization. I know we're introverts and extroverts, but honestly, our female friendships in many instances are built like that. Um, and I think that the more that we are willing to be humble 
and to try to do it a different way, the easier it is to start to create equity and leadership. I love that. That was just so rich with ideas and specificity because I, I know this audience. It's a global audience, mostly women. And I can just envision them listening to the podcast wherever they are in the world saying, okay, I'm excited about this. What can I do? And I, I so appreciate the granular level of, gosh, you know, reach out to your fellow woman, advocate for her, be an ally, uh, boost her, uh, help her. And, and let's also be very intentional about incorporating not only cognitive diversity, but diverse mm-hmm. people in every way, shape and form. Yep, ex- exactly. Wow. And, stuff. you know, I mean, to me, just to circle back to one question that you asked me about what, what do I think a heroine looks like these days? I think a heroine is someone who is using her voice for change everywhere in her life. And so that includes uh, in everything that you were doing at work. Are you thinking through how to tap into that heroic feminine energy to make change and to create equity and freedom for everyone? And I think that's an underused talent for most of us. So I want to ask about a nuance. Uh, You talk about how we should be activists for change. And I imagine some some women may have a hard time with that, thinking that that is a, a different term. Help us understand activists for change. What do you mean by that? And can anyone be an activist for change? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'll tell you, one of the things that's very interesting in my work over the last five years is that I have worked with a lot of women for whom there used to be a separation between work and their engagement in other endeavors, right? So you might have been someone who, uh, let's say you work for a Fortune 500 company. At work, you are very focused on work and you are in a particular mode, right? You are professional, you show up, you do your work, you don't rock the boat. Um, And then outside of work, maybe you're involved in your local Democratic Party or you volunteer for an organization that works um, with children who are uh, in need of mentoring, something along those lines. But there have historically, I think for many of us, not been environments where we are able to feel as though we can be complete people. Um, One of the things that's been really noticeable to me about the last five years is that for many women leaders, that demarcation has fallen away because we've started to recognize that inequity exists in every aspect of our lives. It's not just in one place. um, And that the the experiences that we have had perhaps of discrimination or sexism um, or other issues that we've that we're out there trying to change in the world when we're not at work are also at play for many of us in the workplace. And so when I use the term activist, what I'm really talking about is, are you using your voice for change when you witness inequity or when you experience it? Because um, I think for, for certain of us, particularly women of privilege, uh, particularly for white women, a, a, a big chunk of our messaging Uh, through the culture and perhaps from our families of origin has been that it's better to not rock the boat, that sometimes it's better to be seen and not heard, that maybe we should try to work to fix things quietly rather than speaking up. Um, And I think for many of us, um, that experience has come to an end or is something that we know should come to an end, but we're not quite sure how to do it. And so when I use the term activist, I'm using it in a very broad sense, but it's also about the fact that Um, honestly, if we are not using our voices for change, one of the things that that usually means as well is that we are limiting ourselves. We're not sharing the totality of who we are and the totality of our gifts. And my view is honestly that we can't consider ourselves to be successful 
if we are squelching the gifts that we came in with, depending on your personal philosophy, I happen to believe that we were all born with certain inherent gifts and that that's a part of our purpose. Um, that if we're not using those gifts and really giving them back in substantial and meaningful ways, we're never going to be completely satisfied with what we're doing here. Um, and so the, the ability to speak out for change is also about our willingness to put ourselves on the line to show what we're really capable of and to do it in a way that serves the greater good. So, um, so everyone can be an activist. And I would also just say that I really want to encourage people um, and your audience to, um, to, to flip their own scripts on this, to, to understand that there is an incredible opportunity right now at this historic time that we're living through to really create change that that betters the world and the working world in particular for all of us. And it's on all of us to do that. Elizabeth, thank you. I have learned so much. And thank you for your, your inspiration and your specific ideas about how to flip the script. I'm eager uh, to get out there and continue to talk about this awesome book. I want to gift it to all my women colleagues and friends. And let me tell our global audience about it. It's called Becoming Heroines. And of course, it's available on Amazon and all major book retailers, but I'm grateful that you also support the independent bookstore. So please look for it there as well, global listeners. Elizabeth, continued success. Thank you for this incredible work. Thank you so much for having me. And if you like the show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave a review because this helps new listeners find us online. Let me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to feature on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>